Pain Talk, a podcast for patients living with pain and those that care for them. Now here's your host, palliative and emergency care physician, Dr. Maureen Allen. Welcome everyone to another Pain Talk podcast. Today we're going to dive into a really interesting podcast talking about the science behind pain. And I promise you I'm not going to dive into a rabbit hole and not pull myself up, but maybe try and figure out how we can use the science to help us understand complex pain, but also how we can help patients move forward in their life. So why does our understanding of the science matter? I mean, obviously, there are the things that we think about that are so important. Science also can bring us possibility and hope. So especially for someone living with a complex condition, when we, when traditional investigations such as, you know, x-rays or diagnostic imaging or laboratory testing doesn't really tell us the crux of the problem. And often patients are left with a differential like degenerative disc disease or degenerative arthritis. And for most of us, we know that that really is a chronic condition that is associated with aging. And it's something that's going to happen to all of us. And there is no correlation between the degenerative disease that we see and the amount of suffering or impact that has on the patient. And in fact, we can add another layer there. So someone with degenerative disease, the key really is to keep them moving to get those muscles strong. But if they're living with a persistent pain syndrome, that becomes really difficult because of these flare-ups. I also think that the science really helps us manage risk with respect to any pharmacotherapy that we're bringing in there, but also any interventions uh, that we might use for the patient. So we can often get patients stuck in some maladaptive coping, uh, in particular around certain interventional uh, procedures that we do, where it's something that helps them in the short term, but really is not helping them in the long term. The other thing that science can do is bring empathy. So for a patient living with complex pain and multiple unexplained symptoms, we now understand some of the pathophysiology around pain amplification that is happening centrally. So this is sometimes referred to as central sensitization. Okay, so where we're going to go, we're just going to explore the science, but also discuss some common brain mechanisms that exist between chronic pain. And I'm going to pull in substance use disorders, not because I feel patients are at risk, but it's kind of interesting to look at the hardwiring and how there can be overlap between these very complex uh, conditions. So also explore some patient factors and what healthcare providers can do to mitigate the risk for patients around a substance use disorder. So how does chronic pain happen? Well, we're still learning. It's very complex, but we know it's an interaction between multiple aspects of the human condition. So we think about genetics, we think about the psychology, we think of the neurobiology, and also we think about the immune system. What this highlights is that everyone is going to have a very specific kind of journey around their pain. Everyone's going to need a very specific type of um, plan in order to manage it. There are some basic principles that we can use, but care is going to be very individual specific. And I think that's why it it becomes so challenging for us. So if I look at uh, chronic pain and I think about all the factors that can impact or create a scenario where the patient is going to develop pain, there are patient factors, there are brain factors, there are factors within the pain pathway. There are also drug factors. We know certain medications 
put a patient at higher risk for developing pain sensitization. And the classic one would be the opiate analgesic. There's also things that are happening within the central nervous system around the nerve cells and the non-neuronal cells, in particular glial cells. The immune system factors are also fascinating, especially when we look at the immune system around priming. And this is something very similar that we see with a type 4 hypersensitivity reaction where the patient will take an antibiotic, they do okay. The second time they take the antibiotic, they get a rash. So that's often seen as priming or sensitization. So let's look at the patient factors that contribute to this. So what we know is that when we see a patient in a period of time clinically, they're going to bring to us certain aspects of their life story and their life experience. They're also going to bring the habits and behaviors that they've used to manage their life. And so I like to think of these as resiliency and vulnerability factors. So everyone's with respect to their story and these habits and behaviors are going to be very, very unique. But I think what it it highlights for us is that in particular around complex pain and substance use disorders is that often patients have had significant adverse childhood experiences that often formulate into a condition that we like to think about as a trauma-informed approach so that these patients have often had significant trauma in their life, whether it's through their journey in life or even within the healthcare system sometimes. The other factor is how that patient is going to experience pain. And that really is how the brain is processing the information. So how big is that threat? You know, what kind of pain protective behaviors that they're using, whether it is in those pain tucks or the muscle work, they can also get into certain behaviors where they're not moving certain extremities, in particular bending a knee. And also in terms of how they perceive that pain experience. So are they thinking of worst case scenario thinking, which we know is a huge predictor for uh, a risk for the development of chronic pain. And then of course, there's our approach, which is really impactful. So we can never minimize the power we have to influence a moment in time in healthcare so that we can actually contribute to ongoing pain for some patients, especially when the patient does not feel validated or doesn't feel listened to. So we can contribute to the pain chronification or the development of chronic pain just by how we validate uh, the experience for that patient and how we help them move through it. Or we can actually help them resolve their pain experience so that they come back to a zero on 10, which is what we're hoping. Often patients, because of these life experiences, come to us with all kinds of challenges. And so what's important about that trauma-informed approach is that we need to create that safe space for the, the patient. So this requires us to validate as well as listen. We also need to build that trust. Um, One of the things that I think is so important when I think about the area that I work in, which is in the emergency department, is that when patients come in, you know, after a particular experience around an injury and their response is out of proportion than what I would expect, I need them to know that I've got their back and that they're often what's causing that reaction is not what we think. And most physicians would think, well, they must be just looking for medication. No, it's, it's really about their previous life experience, and that they may actually be an individual with a trauma brain. So where all of this uh, 
data started coming from around trauma-informed care is really around the data that was collected around adverse childhood experiences. Some key findings, in particular some of the work that was done out of California, showed that at least 61.7% of adults had experienced at least one adverse childhood experience in their lifetime. I mean, that's, that's remarkable, one in six. Of that, about 16.7% had experienced more than four. So what would be these adverse uh, childhood experiences that we think about? So, and I'm sure most of us can look at this list and say, wow, I mean, you realize the commonality of these experiences that probably all of us at some point have experienced some kind of trauma in our life. So the topmost or the most common one was the emotional or verbal abuse. The next to that would be parental separation or divorce. Next to that would be a substance use disorder uh, by a household member. Below that is the physical abuse, a witness to domestic violence, household member with mental illness, if there's been a previous history of sexual abuse, if there's been any history of neglect, or if they have had anyone in the family that's been incarcerated. So those have been identified as those adverse childhood experiences. So when we think about a trauma-informed approach for these patients, we often hear something called the four R's. The first one is that it realizes widespread impact of trauma and understands potential paths for recovery, recognizes the signs and symptoms of trauma in clients, family, staff, and other involved in the system, and responds by fully integrating knowledge about trauma into policies, procedures, and practices, and resists. So what we want to do is resist re-traumatizing the patients that we see. So that this is where it becomes uh, incredibly useful to appreciate these adverse childhood experiences and just assume. It's like uh, we often approach infectious diseases in the emergency room by using a strategy called universal precaution. I think we need to use an, uh, a universal precaution approach when we think about individual's pain experience and when they approach to the emergency department. Rather than minimize the pain experience for the patient, letting them know that you've got their back is really important. So I want to dive into some of the brain factors, and we're going to keep this really simple, but I do find this fascinating. So I like to, even though the brain is a very complex organ, obviously, but there are two areas when I think about pain that become really important. One is the limbic system, and the other thing is the prefrontal cortex. And the reason I like to bring the prefrontal cortex in is because this is what can give us hope when we start to understand how the prefrontal cortex can take us out of survival mode and bring us to that place of awareness and calm. The classic example of mindful meditation, for example, is really coming out of that survival mode into that mindful mode. The fastest way to get there is through our breath. but the pre So it's going from that limbic system to that prefrontal cortex. So the prefrontal cortex is seen as the most primitive part of our brain. It's been uh, around since the dawn of man. It's actually probably why man has outlived so many other species. It's also a very unconscious part of our brain. So we think about that fight, flight, or freeze response. But it's also where reward happens, uh, survival and protection happens. The prefrontal cortex is the most evolved part of our brain. It is what we think about as the most conscious. So when we talk about mindful meditation, we're really talking about that prefrontal cortex. So using a skill like your breath, which is the gateway to mindfulness, is really an essential tool when we're trying to help patients with complex pain or even a substance use disorder manage their complex illness. 
So the limbic system is a number of uh, different structures, and we're not going to go through those. But two of the most important are the amygdalas, which we often think about as the threat detectors, and also the reward system, which is the dopaminergic pathways. So dopamine is that feel-good chemical that we think about that makes us feel happy, makes us feel positive, often has been associated with uh, substance use disorder, in particular drugs. But we're starting to really understand that there are many, many other things that can stimulate this pathway. So the limbic system does a lot of complex emotion and memory. It's also conditioned learning. It's a very complex area. The term limbic system really talks about bordering. uh, So it's more in that midbrain area. In the dopaminergic pathway or the reward center, there are really two areas that uh, have concentrated dopamine. One is called the ventral tegmental area, and the other one is the nucleus accumbens. And if you're really, really interested in learning more about that reward system or even in some of the brain function in general, there's some really great YouTube videos that are very short and sweet. They're called Two Minute Neuroscience. I highly recommend if you're really interested in understanding the brain in a very simplistic way, obviously the brain is much more complex, uh, you might find these two-minute neuroscience YouTube videos really helpful. The reward system is really connected so that that, uh, ventral tegmental area is connected to the nucleus accumbens by a pathway which is called the mesolimbic dopamine pathway or the reward system. So when we often think about substance use disorder, that's the pathway we're often talking about. There is a second pathway, which actually uh, extends from the nucleus accumbens to the cortical areas of the brain. And this is called the mesocortical dopamine pathway. So that spreads uh, dopamine throughout the cerebral cortex. When we look at the amygdalas, which are often seen as the threat detectors, they are really, really complex and quite interesting. So the the amygdalas uh, have a number of nuclei within them that I'm not going to go into, but It is most recognized for processing sort of negative emotions when we think about fear and threats. But it does a lot more, obviously. So the evaluation of sensory stimuli, emotional learning and memory, our mood states as well as mood disorders uh, can be actually uh, identified to the amygdala. What we're recognizing is that it's also very active in processing positive stimuli. And we'll dig into this a little bit further because this is where the interface of chronic pain and substance use disorders can sometimes be found. So there has been some recognition that the amygdala may have a role in addiction and social interactions as well. So the interface between pain and addiction is really about those shared neural pathways that we often talk about. I want to stress, though, that there is no clinical studies that have directly linked chronic pain and addiction neurobiology, however, but There are clinical and neurobiological similarities between chronic pain and addiction that I think are worth talking about. For example, there is substantial overlap between brain regions that engage by ongoing pain, when pain starts, when pain goes off, also engages around addictive drugs, as well as analgesic drugs. So these are people that are using substances non-medically and patients who are using it medically. So medically would be the use of an opioid for the management of pain. A substance use disorder or uh, using an opioid from the illicit uh, use of the opioid may be more about how it causes that euphoria or that energy. Now, what's interesting is patients who develop a substance use disorder can be using opiates medically or non-medically. And this is what's really important. We often don't think 
that patients who are using opioids for a legitimate pain problem would develop an opiate use disorder, but in fact they can because everybody's brain is vulnerable, especially if they have certain risk factors. There's also studies that demonstrate that the risk for addictive behavior is ingrained in pain neuropathology because of the neural changes that are comparable to long-term substance abuse, even if the patient has not had prior drug consumption. So there can be some really interesting changes that are happening, but not so much around drug, but around behavior and maybe some habits as well. So both types of stimuli are associated with massive dopaminergic surges in reward, motivation, and learning centers. So where we might see that clinically or how we might think about that is just exploring some of the habits and behaviors that patients are using to manage their complex pain and helping them manage that risk. So there can be drug factors, and where I might see it is the challenge of when I'm seeing a patient who's been on long-term opiate analgesic, in particular short-acting, how challenging it can be to switch them over to long-acting. And I think what's happening there is that it's not so much a, a substance use disorder, but it is problematic in that the brain has really learned that the benefit is really when we feel the effect of that medication. And what happens with long-acting, it's, it's not really something that the patient is experiencing. So many of the patients that we try and switch to long-acting who've been using short-acting opioids for a long period of time find it very um, uh, difficult to do that. And in fact, will often tell you that they don't find it effective in managing their pain, even though the opiate equivalency is the same for your short-acting and your long-acting. All you've done is switched it to a different delivery system. So the reward for the patient is immediate pain relief, and they learn very quickly. So that's, that's the reward, and they're using them for analgesia. Other things that you'll see around uh, behavior or habits around pain protective behaviors, patients will often go into a pain tuck, and they will get immediate relief of their pain. The problem is, is it starts to create tremendous chaos, and it's because it puts more stress on other tissue. And uh, so we'll see this in patients who are reluctant to bend their knee because of the fear of worsening the pain or causing damage. So these things do give them temporary pain relief, but in the long term start to create some chaos, just like the short-acting opiates do. So it can become a really important talking point. And in fact, prior to switching a patient over to long-acting, I'll often have a very uh, good conversation with the patient around the differences between the two, and we talk about this extensively in the pain self-management program. Another clinical implication that you might see, and this is how patients often are trying to find that place of calm, because they get to a point where even simple maneuvers can give them significant flare-ups of their chronic pain. So we start to see some disconnection and isolation. It's hard to see that as a reward, but for some patients, It actually uh, benefits them so that they're not going out into public. They're not having to interact. So in some ways, it becomes almost a coping strategy. But what they're trying to do is bring predictability into their pain flare-ups. So initially, this short-term gain is helpful, but eventually it starts to create more chaos because humans need connection. If we look at it from an evolutionary perspective, if you become disconnected, if you are not moving, you actually are going to get eaten by predators. So in fact, what happens to that alarm system is it becomes more amplified. And so when they become less active, more isolated, their pain actually starts to get worse. 
So just to reinforce that is that the relief is temporary, but eventually will create more chaos. So this is the short-term gain of some of these behaviors as well as the pharmacotherapy. So it's important to recognize that that reward can take many forms, as we talked about, that analgesia, that calm, that distraction. Sometimes it's even a a way of getting out of doing certain types of uh, chores or behaviors. So we're going to stop there, and what we're going to do is we're going to pick it up on the other side and explore how cells in the nervous system respond to pain and contribute to the development of chronic pain. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Pain Talk. To learn more about our podcast and to find links mentioned in today's show, please visit our website at paintalk.ca.